Well, um, just want to say good morning to everybody. If this is your first time visiting us here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship, or if you're joining us online for the first time, we want to say welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us here at Hosanna. You know, this morning we're going to be talking about prayer. Prayer is a key, important part of the life of a believer. But what we're really specifically going to be dialing in on this morning is why we sometimes feel like our prayers aren't working. You ever had that moment? You're praying and you feel like you're just bouncing off the ceiling, right? And you're like, what is going on, right? We've all had that experience. You know, and, and, and we pray because we want to seek the Lord, we want to seek his will, and, and we also pray because we don't know what's going to happen in the future, right? And so we lift up needs to him, and, and really so much of our lives are built around not knowing what's going to happen in the future. And so we make decisions all the time based upon those things, seeking counsel, seeking advice, right? We get health insurance because we're not sure what's going to happen in the future, we get life insurance because, well, you never know, and so you want to be ready for the unknown. You have homeowner's insurance, renter's insurance, car insurance, pet insurance, every type of insurance you can think of because we're trying to be ready for the unknown. We want to be ready for what could happen. You know, years ago, I used to sell a, a type of service that was like a legal insurance, and one of the things we used to tell people is that when it comes to insurance, it's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it, right? Now, it was a good sales pitch, but it was also true, right? It was a really good truth, and so we used to always tell people that because <clears throat> you never know. You never know when something's gonna happen and you might need help, and so it's a kind of a similar thing with prayer where we seek the Lord and we say, God, I don't know what's happening with this. I wanna know what to do about that so that we can be ready, so that we can be prepared. You know, and when we buy insurance in our lives in preparation of the unknown, what we're buying is a little bit uh, a peace of mind, right? A little bit of safety against uncertainty because we don't know what will happen in the future. You know, uncertainty and all those types of things, they bring fear, they bring worry, they bring anxiety into our lives simply because we don't know what we don't know. You know, recently we've been told that by 2035 here in California that it's only gonna be legal to buy an electric vehicle. And then two days later, they say, please don't plug in your electric vehicles. We can't produce enough electricity. And people are like uncertain. <laughs> What's that future going to look like? How are we going to survive in all that? You know, many people are uncertain about our uh, economy today, about their own economics in their families. People are uncertain about our children's education, especially when it comes to the public education sector. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world. And as a result, some people do all kinds of things to try and find out what the future is going to hold, or at least to do something to deal with the uncertainty. Some turn to astrology and think they'll find the answer in the stars. Some go talk to psychics and con artists like that, thinking that these people are going to be able to tell them the future. Others will turn to cult leaders, all hoping to find security, hoping to find assurance, some kind of certainty for the future. Now, if you ask someone today what you can be absolutely certain of in the future, they might answer, as Ben Franklin once did, there are only two things certain in life, death and taxes, right? Now, as we approach the conclusion of 1 John here, John is revisiting this topic of confidence, revisiting this topic of assurance and certainty one last time with one final mention of the one thing that we should absolutely have complete confidence and absolute certainty in our salvation. That's one of the foundational things as a, as a believer lives in this world that we should have absolute confidence in, that we are God's kids, that we are saved. And he's touched on this throughout his entire letter of 1 John, saying things like, this is how we know that we know him, right? And then he's gone on to give us really throughout the letter three tests to um, be able to identify the genuineness of your faith, the test of obedience, the test of faith, the test of love, but here as he's closing his letter, he launches from those things the confidence of our salvation into a confidence that results from that, the confidence that God hears our prayers. And that's a very important confidence to have because again, sometimes we feel like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and we're not sure. Is God hearing me? Is he listening? And one of the great truths of the Bible, I believe, is that if you are God's child, he hears your prayers. 
and he answers your prayers. It might not always be the answer you want, but he is always listening to his kids, and he is always answering his kids' requests. Now, knowing that we possess full access to God and the confidence that he hears us and answers us when we pray, it's really critical, key, in living a very successful, peaceful, confident, joyous life as a believer in this world, especially today. Knowing, being absolutely sure of what we have in and through Christ leads to the habit of confident dependence on him because we can always rest assured that our Father who is in heaven knows all things, knows the future, and ultimately knows what is best for his kids. That's what we're going to be talking about today, but we're going to start with a time of worship and praise because he is glorious, he is worthy, he is awesome, and he is the one that we can trust in at all times. He is the one that has saved us, and he is the one that we know hears us as his children when we pray to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, so much for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that your word gives us, God, into how to live day by day. Lord, we are so thankful for the salvation we have in Christ. God, how you came to this earth and you clothed yourself in flesh and you lived a perfect life and then you died on the cross the death we deserve and impute to us the perfect life that you lived. Lord, that we would be holy and blameless before you. And to be quite honest, God, that is just a mystery I don't know if we'll ever understand until we stand before you in heaven. But God, we receive it and we're so thankful. And we know, Lord, that as your children, we can be confident of that truth. And because we can be confident of that truth, we can be confident, Lord, that you hear us when we pray. And Lord, that you do answer according to your will when those prayers are according to your will. So Lord, today I ask that you would encourage us, God. Encourage those of us that may have been laboring in prayer and feeling like you're not listening. God, that we would learn what's going on today through your word, God, as you would speak to us about what happens with prayer, why we pray, and how we should pray. But Lord, that we would leave here today not unsure about our status with you, not unsure about our relationship with you, but quite the opposite. That we would leave here today with a very powerful and strong and solid confidence and assurance and certainty that if we are your kids, you hear us. And we thank you for that, Lord. We love you so much, God. We just want to praise your name right now because you are worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. This morning we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. And so I just want to read it for context here. He says in verse 13, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Now, we touched on verse 13 last week at the close of the study, but I'm starting with verse 13 here this week because it dovetails right into verses 14 and 15. And as John is closing his letter, he wants all of us, his readers, to to leave knowing some very important things. And the first one is knowing that we have eternal life. That is how he's closing this letter. Now, knowing we're saved, knowing we have eternal life, knowing we're God's kids— um, really is, is key. It is possible. It is something we can be absolutely sure of. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are saved. That is one of the main points of John's letter. We don't have to doubt it. We don't have to second guess it. We don't have to wonder about it. It is the purpose. I mean, this, this verse 13 here in chapter 5, this really is the purpose of the entire letter that John is writing. And I believe he was writing this because um, people then, just like people today in our world, uh, believers can sometimes worry about whether or not they're really saved. I don't know if you've ever struggled with that in your own life. Many have. You might have seasons or times in your life where you're just not sure if you're really saved. Specifically in John's time, false teachers had infiltrated the church this group called the Gnostics, that were questioning what the, what the believers 
um, confessed to know about Jesus. They were questioning all of that. They were questioning whether Jesus was who he said he was. They were questioning whether or not the way to know God, the way to come close to God, the way to be saved, was indeed what the, the apostles had been preaching. And so they were muddying the waters and saying, look, you really don't know God unless you have our special knowledge. You really don't know him. You're not really his kid unless you know what we know, and the only way to know what we know is to become one of us and to join our group. And so people were finding themselves in places of uncertainty when it came to their salvation. And that's not a new thing. It's an old thing, and it's been around forever. We all can find ourselves wrestling with reconciling the truth of our sinfulness with God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's mercy. We can find ourselves wrestling with, with just reconciling all of those things together. Right? I'm saved. I've confessed Christ. I believe he's God, yet I still sin. What's going on? And we wrestle with that. And these are the things John has been addressing in this letter. Am I really a Christian? Do I really know God? Is Jesus really God? Does does his death on the cross 2,000 years ago really affect my life today? These are questions that many have uh, dealt with, you know, and God doesn't want his kids to worry about these things. God's intent is not that we doubt or lack assurance about whether or not we are saved, whether we, is kid, we are his kids. And so throughout this letter, John has established a few different tests to um, help believers to help those that that are God's kids find the assurance that they need and we'll touch on that a little bit later but here in verse 13 when you read verse 13 for what it says it's implying that it is possible to be truly genuinely saved and to not have assurance of your salvation that's what it's stating it's just a fact it's a reality now there are a lot of reasons why someone might be unsure that they're saved the first reason I think is a big one is because they're not Right? That, that's, a, that's a reason, right? There's no inner testimony in their life. There's no nature, their uh, change of nature in who they are. There's no change in their behavior. They've never experienced God. And yet there are people that find themselves in a situation where they've never experienced God, but they believe that they're saved. A lot of those are in the cults that exist around the world today who believe in a false Jesus and a false gospel, and they genuinely think, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven or whatever version of heaven their uh, false doctrine purports to be true. You know, but some people in, in the world have substituted ceremony for conversion, right? Instead of coming to faith in Jesus Christ and repenting of their sin, they think, well, I have a, a lot of religious activity and I do a lot of religious things. I, I, I've substituted ceremony for conversion, and so my religious activity um, is, is what matters instead of belief or faith in Jesus Christ, instead of repentance from sin. And what happens then is they find themselves constantly in a place of lacking certainty. Did I do enough religious things today? Am I saved? Did I, did I say enough kumbayas? Did I pass out enough tracts? Did I read enough, for, right? Because their, their entire concept of, of being related to God is wrapped around ceremony and not faith in Christ. Some have a cultural conversion, right? Sometimes people reach a stage in life where they've just lived however they wanted, but maybe they've gotten married and they have kids now and their kids reach a certain age and they go, you know what? I, my kids really need a positive place to, to kind of be. I want to bring them into a place of positive influence. They might think, you know, church, church is the right place to go. That's how I got introduced to church. When I was eight years old, my parents thought, you know what? Our kids need church. In hindsight, I was like, mom and dad, you needed church, right? You know, at the time. But, 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 but their intent was well, right? We, I want to bring my kids to a place where, where there's positive influence. And, and what they thought, when they thought of a place of positive influence, they thought church, right? And so, so they, they brought us in. But there was no change in, in my parents' life at the time, and there was no change in my life for many years. So it was a cultural conversion, right? We're church people now because it's a positive place to be, but there was no life change, no real conversion. And then some have what's called an intellectual conversion, right? Someone talks them into it. People find themselves coming to a place where, you know what, after watching a bunch of YouTube videos and having a bunch of conversations with people, you know, Christianity just makes the most sense to me, so I'm going to give it a go. And they have an intellectual conversion. Well, 
A.W. Tozer said, if someone could talk you into it, someone else can talk you out of it. And so just having an intellectual conversion is not enough. You know, when, when, when someone has a true experience where the Holy Spirit has brought it home in their heart, when they have a real, genuine, true experience with God and God changes their very nature, changes their heart, nobody's gonna talk you out of it because you know that you know. You know that you've been saved. Some of the other reasons people might be unsure that they're saved, and this can include Christians, is some people think it's just not possible in any way, shape, or form to be absolutely sure that you're saved. And, and there are believers in the world today that think that. They go, it's incredibly arrogant to think that you could be absolutely sure about a thing called salvation. And, and their idea is that you, you, know, you just have to wait until you die to find out if it's true. And they go, that's a perfectly acceptable reasoning to, to have with faith. And yet, that very same person, if they went to the doctor and said, doctor, am I sick? Do I have this disease? And the doctor's like, yeah, you may, you may not. We'll just have to wait till you die to find out. They wouldn't accept that for a moment. But when it comes to spiritual things, some go, oh, I'm perfectly fine accepting that. You know, hmm, we don't know. But Jesus said this in John 5, 24. He said, truly I tell you, Anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Has eternal life and will not come under judgment. He doesn't say might have. He doesn't say, hey, think positive and we'll find out when you're dead. He says they have it. They have it. Some might be feeling this separation and going, oh, am I saved? Because as John's been pointing out through this letter that they're, they're walking in darkness. They're walking in disobedience. They're walking in sin. And, and, and that scenario in a believer's life disconnects you from the light. And you sense that and you feel that. And so you might be thinking, wow, I just, I feel like I'm separated from God. Well, you are because of sin. But, but that can sometimes lead to people thinking, am I really a Christian? Am I saved? Am I his kid? Some simply don't understand the grace of God. They haven't grasped the depth of the grace of God yet, you know, and I believe when, when we completely understand how much God loves us, how much grace God has conferred on our lives, we find ourselves in a place of great security and great certainty. And then, of course, there's the devil who is working overtime all the time to get us to question who we are in Christ to doubt our identity in Christ. And, and really, the enemy, the devil, you know, he works overtime in thinking if, if, he, if he could keep a child of God in a state of doubt regarding their salvation, if he could keep a child of God there, then that child of God will often find it very difficult to serve God because they live their whole life looking inward all the time. Am I saved? Am I saved? Am I saved? And they never look outward to say, who can I serve? They're constantly, you know, second-guessing themselves, and the devil loves to keep believers in that place. But John, as he's been writing and now closing this letter, very firmly believes that it is important, very important, to confidently know that you're saved. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, we would not have been commanded to give diligence to make our calling and election sure if it were not intended for us to be sure. I am sure it is right for a child of God to know that God is his father and never have to question in their heart their sonship. And I believe that. You know, John, he's had many purposes in his writings. In, in John chapter 20, verse 31, um, in his gospel, he said, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus the Messiah is the son of God. John's gospel, the purpose of John's gospel was evangelism. The, the intent and purpose was evangelistic. That's why he wrote his gospel. But here in 1 John 5.13, the purpose of this epistle, the purpose of this letter is assurance of salvation for those that know Jesus Christ. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And he goes, I have written these things. Again, that's referring back to the whole letter. Specifically, these, these three tests, these three ways that he presented to us to know 
that we're saved, to, to be able to test the genuineness of our faith. It's faith, obedience, and love. These are the three things he's presented throughout this letter. Faith being really this idea that unless we believe in Jesus, and really the idea is Jesus as revealed in God's holy word, who he is and what he did, unless we believe in him and have our faith in him, we cannot be saved. There is salvation in no other, the Bible says. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not one of the ways, one of the truths, one of the lives. I am the way, Jesus said, Jesus taught. And if we have genuinely believed in Jesus, then we can find assurance that we are genuinely his kid. And then you have the test of obedience, right? If you're a child of God, if you've been genuinely regenerated and saved and your nature has been changed, then one of the evidences that you will see in your life is, is a desire, an intention to obey God. Not that you will do so perfectly and never stumble, but you'll be able to see the norm of your life. What characterizes you overall is a desire to do what God says to do. I want to obey God. I, I want to do what he says. This is what you'll see in your life as John presents. And then the third test was love. Do you, do you love your fellow believers? Specifically your fellow believers. It's not, do you just have love? We're to love one another. We're to show love to the world, yes. But the test that John says that you are genuinely indeed saved is do you love other believers? Do you place them in a, in, a, in a position in your life where you will sacrificially serve them if it comes to it, that you will do what you can to pray for them and meet their needs and be connected in their lives as you can and as you are led to do so? I have met people who profess to be believers, and it's very few, thankfully. They're like, oh, I know Jesus, and yeah, and da-da-da-da, and they're like, okay, great. But they constantly say things like, I just hate people. I can't stand people in the church. And I'm like, I don't know what church you go to, <laughs> but come to Hosanna, you'll, you'll be loved, you know? Um, but John presents these three tests, you know? And then, of course, in John 13, 35, Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. It's, it's the people of God loving one another that's this third test. And if you look at these things, faith, obedience, love, and you go, yeah, that, that, that characterizes my life, congratulations, you're a Christian. You can stand confidently and say, I know I'm saved, I know I'm God's kid. You notice the test there, none of it was be perfect. Right, that's a joke I have with people when they're training or you know, learning new things and okay, you know, Pastor Nathan, what, what, what's the standard? I'm like, oh, it's a short list, one thing, just be perfect, <laughs> right? And ha ha, because no one's perfect, none of us can be perfect, you know, and, and, and that's not on the test of, you know, am, am I a perfect Christian? That's not a part of the thing. It's do you believe Jesus? Do you depend on him? Do you trust in him and him alone? Jesus as revealed by the Bible. Jesus who is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. God come to this earth in the flesh and die on the cross for your sins and risen again from the dead. Do you believe in him? Is your faith in him and what he did for you? Do you have a new nature that says, I, I want to obey God? Do you love believers? Then congratulations, you're a Christian. Now, John established these three tests, and, and again, as I said, he revisited these things over and over and over throughout this letter so that we would be able to come to an assurance, a certainty of our salvation. But in verses 14 and 15, John then springboards from that and goes on to teach us that knowing we have eternal life, knowing that we're God's kids, knowing that he's our dad, knowing that, leads to an effective prayer life. Look at verse 14 with me. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now verses 13 and 14, as I said, are tied together. The idea is knowing that we have eternal life, knowing that we're God's kids, knowing that he is our father, leads to having confidence that he hears us when we pray. That he hears us when we pray. Now that word hears there, it's an interesting word. It means to listen with intention, right? Now over the years, I've heard many wives go, my husband lacks that skill, right? 
you're listening, but you don't hear me. Listen with intention. It, it, it's the idea of, of, of paying attention to someone. That's the idea. That we know that God hears us when we pray. It's not like, hey, God, are you available? Boo, boo, boo. We're sorry. The person you're trying to reach is not available. That reality doesn't exist with God's kids when it comes to him hearing us. He is always available, always ready to hear us, and praying with confidence. You go into the book of Acts, you see that praying with confidence was a hallmark of the early church. Right? They didn't pray with doubt. They prayed with confidence, and this is something that, that should characterize every believer today and every believer in every age. So he starts out there, he says, this is the confidence we have before him. That's the key of this, right? Our confidence is built on our access to God, that we have access to him, right? We've said this many times in Bible studies. When Jesus died on the cross, there was an earthquake, there was darkness, and there was also what? The veil was torn from top to bottom. A supernatural event proving, proving that God said, because of the sacrifice of my son, the blood that was shed, access to me is now granted to everybody. There is no veil of separation anymore. You have instant and immediate access to God. And that's what that phrase before him means. Before him means positional relation involving potential interaction. It means that we're face to face with God, metaphorically, with the intention of, of activity, that we're before him and he listens and he pays attention to us. It means that we have immediate contact and direct presence with God. That there is no busy signal, for those of you who remember that. Today it's like there's always full bars. Right? God is never unavailable. Now, when we choose to walk in darkness, when we choose to walk in disobedience, when we choose to, to walk in sin, when we choose to, to refuse to confess our sins, then what we do is we effectively block him in our phone. We block his calls. We remove his contact. But from God's perspective, his line is always open, always listening, ready to hear his kids. Now, growing and learning and maturing in, in, in our understanding of prayer is, is important. I think it's one of the key disciplines of a Christian life is to constantly be growing in prayer and your understanding of prayer and what it is. It's something that we never um, are done learning, right? When he says the word confidence there in verse 14, it means boldness in speech, that we have confidence before him. That boldness in speech is the idea of being able to speak out with confidence. It's the same exact word he used back in chapter 3, verse 21, when he was talking about when our heart condemns us, right? You guys remember that? When our heart condemns us, the confidence that we are his allows us to keep coming to him and asking him for our needs and asking him for help. When you don't have confidence that you're his, when you don't have confidence that he loves you, when you don't have confidence that you're his kid, you're, you're oh my gosh, he's gonna smite me like a judge and he's gonna hit the gavel and declare death penalty in my life. And that's the position of a criminal. But as his kid, we know that we can come before him at all times and go, dad, I messed up. Dad, I blew it. I'm so sorry. And he's there, and he hears us. Same word, boldness in speech, the boldness to be able to ask for help, right? It said this in Hebrews uh, chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. And so it's that confidence, knowing we have access to him at all times, that we can come to his presence no matter what we've done, to ask for, for whatever it is we think we need at any time. He's never too busy for us, and we should always have absolute confidence of that direct, direct access that we have to him as his kids. Now, the next phrase he uses there in verse 14 is interesting because the first part of it, he says, if we ask anything. And a lot of people, when it comes to prayer and their relationship with God, they kind of mentally check out of the verse right at that point. If we ask anything, some view then, uh, based on that, they'll view prayer as trying to get God to give you something you want. That's what prayer is to some people. It's a negotiation. 
It's a sales pitch. It's, it, it's coercion to get him to do what you want him to do. That's how they think of prayer. But that's not where prayer is at all. Prayer is not trying to get what you want. Prayer is coming to God seeking what he wants for you. That's what prayer is. Now, yes, there are many places in the Bible where it talks about when we pray, we come to him with our prayers and supplications, but the essence of this coming before God, this essence of coming before him is saying, God, what do you want in my life? God, your will be done in my life. God, I have this situation, this concern, I'm unsure what you want me to do, but at the end of the day, what do you want me to do? That is the essence of prayer. So that leads from having confidence before him to what I'm calling the condition of prayer, right? Look at the verse again. If we ask anything, what? According to his will. According to his will. God does not just simply hand us his Venmo and say, type in whatever amount you need any more than a parent would do that for their children and their requests. But sometimes people think that. God is a cosmic vending machine. And my prayer is, hey God, beep, boop, boop, give me what I want. And that's not at all what prayer is supposed to be. I think the single most important principle of prayer is learning to pray according to his will. That's a key. That's a key to effective prayer. That's a key to, to prayer that is, that is um, heard and, and answered in, in the way that we understand it. You know, Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done, right? That's what Jesus taught, not your will be changed to what I want it to be. Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done. Now, this raises the question, and I think it's a million-dollar question, probably in the top five of Christian questions of all time. How then do we know what the will of God is? Have you ever asked that before? What is God's will? Specifically, what is God's will for my life, people ask. What does God want for me? What does God want from me? It's a good question. It's a valid question. But before I work on answering that, I think the more important question is, do you want God's will? Do you desire God's will and only his will to be lived out in your life? That's the question before we say, what, God, what is your will? Do, do you want his will? Do you want that to be what governs your life? Again, Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. Now, that didn't preclude Jesus going, here's my idea, right? If there's any other way, God, let this cut pass from me. And, and it's okay to say, God, here's, here's, here's my thought, my suggestion, my hope. But it always has to end with, but nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. But many will pray this way sometimes. Your will be done as long as that will is what I want or what I think it should be. Your kingdom come according to the blueprint that I have submitted to you, Lord. And they're ultimately not interested in what God wants. They just want a God who consents to their will. They want a blanket yes to their desires. Are we praying today as his children, as his people, God, your will be done in my life no matter what? That's a hard prayer to pray sometimes, right? Because we're afraid of what his will might be. And so we're like, God, your will be done in my life according to these parameters. What if God said, hey, I'm calling you to Siberia as a missionary? <laughs> A lot of us would be like, oh, oh that's not the Lord. <laughs> not Siberia. But what if it was God's will? Would you listen? And because we can be afraid of, of what his will might be, sometimes we're afraid to pray according to his will. But when we pray according to the will of God and we pray his will be done and we pray his will take place, that's a prayer that we can be absolutely sure that he hears and answers. 
absolute confidence. But I don't believe we can pray that way until we desire his will in our lives. And we can't really desire God's will in our lives until we are willing to do God's will even before we know what it is. But there's an incredible freedom in coming to that place. Like Isaiah said, here I am, send me. I'll do whatever you want, God. Because I believe your will is best. Your will is perfect. Your will is righteous. God, if you're calling me to Siberia, that is the best possible use of my life and my time. And so I I will submit to your will, God. What is your will? Your will be done, God. Show me, teach me, lead me. So when we desire his will, then praying according to his will then involves discerning the will of God. What is God's will? How do we know what God's will is? Many of us think this is an impossible task. Many think there's no possible way to know God's will. It's the most difficult thing to do, but God gives us two great helps to assist us. The first one is this thing we have called the Bible. Let me introduce you to the Bible. His book, his word. Guess what's in his book and his word? His will. You know, much of what God wants for us, much of what God wants from us is found in his word. There we read and and then know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what we read is the will of God. He gives clear directives. He gives positive admonitions. He gives negative admonitions, right? Do this, don't do this. Things that are very clear. You don't have to pray about those things. You don't have to get counsel about those things because, because God said it. It's already revealed in his will. Just do it, obey it, follow it. Now, sure, there may be times where we're like, okay, I'm willing to do it and obey it and follow it, but I'm, I'm kind of not sure about the nuances. Great, get counsel, get prayer. But there's some things that, that are revealed in his word that are just clear, and God's will will never contradict his word. God told me I'm supposed to rob that bank. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. There are some things that just I don't think you need to pray for because God has already made his will abundantly clear. This one often comes up, you know, a Christian praying about marrying their unsaved boyfriend or girlfriend. God, do you want me to marry them? He already said in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. You don't gotta pray about that. God already gave you his will. What if I've gotten saved while I was married and my spouse still isn't saved? Should I get a divorce? 1 Corinthians 7, if your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay with you, then stay. Because your witness might lead them to salvation. But if they leave you and divorce you, you're good. You don't gotta pray about that. God's already revealed that in his will. So the first place to go to determine God's will is his word, the Bible. Sink into it, learn what it says, learn what God desires, learn what he wants, what he doesn't want. You know, and then you pray according and around that. God, I know this is what you want. So I'm not praying about whether or not I should do that, but maybe there's some nuances that I'm not sure about, sure, but, but know his word, and you'll know his will. Secondly, in addition to the Bible um, for discerning the will of God, we have to depend on the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have to depend on the leading of the Spirit. Why? Because there is no verse in the Bible that says, yes, the Lord saith you are to marry so-and-so by name. Lord, am I supposed to marry this person? Now, this doesn't mean go and do Bible roulette and open it up and say, hey, it says Nathan right there. (laughs) When he lets me know, I'll let you know too, I guess, right? Um, But we can trust that, that when we take what we learn from his word, when we take what we've learned about his character, his heart, his will, what it teaches us about all that, when we start there and we're praying about something that the word isn't explicit about, then we can trust that the Holy Spirit is gonna guide us because we're already enmeshed in his word and his will and we know his heart, we know his character and we say, okay, Holy Spirit, so I, I need you to guide me on this thing because I don't find a specific in the word, but I know your heart and I wanna know God's will and your character. Trust the Holy Spirit to lead you in that. And yeah, myself included, there are often times we catch ourselves thinking we know 
what God should do. I know how God should work in this situation. I know what, what, what his will should be. But the reality is, is in many situations, we have no idea what God's will is. In many situations, we read the word and we see God's character and will, but we're, we're still unclear. But God, the specific thing that, that isn't addressed directly. Well, Romans chapter eight says, in the same way, the spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. Have you ever found yourself in prayer and you're just like, I don't even have the words. I don't even have the thoughts to even begin how to address this. And it's just, God, I don't know. It hurts. You know, that's kind of what he's talking about. It says, he who searches our hearts there in Romans 8. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so we search the word of God to know God's character, God's heart. The things that are clear and direct, very clear and direct, don't need to pray about those things. The stuff you're not sure of, if you're immersed in his word and you're, and you're as familiar with, with God's heart as you can be, then pray and trust the Holy Spirit who dwells within you to lead you to his will. And then you go, okay, this is what I feel like the Spirit's telling me, and you line it back up with the word of God because God's will is never gonna contradict his word. So we pray according to God's will, we discern is God's will, we desire it, we want it, but then you have to be willing to do it. This is me, not scripture, speaking here. <laughs> but I'm not sure that, that, that God is always gonna reveal his will to you if he knows you're not even gonna do it. That's an experience I've had in my own lives, in my own life, not 100% of the time please tell me what to do, tell me what to do. And I don't get an answer, and I don't get an answer. At the end of the day, I was like, even if he gave me an answer, I wasn't going to obey. Well, maybe that's why I didn't get the answer. Effective prayer starts with knowing and having, knowing that we have eternal life. That leads to a confidence in coming before him. When we meet the condition of prayer, when we pray according to his will, Right When we desire his will, when we then discern his will through the word and through the Holy Spirit, and we, we, we take that back and forth, we pray with, with all this, it says we know that he hears us. We know that he hears us, no question, no doubt. Look at verse 15. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we, what we have asked of him. John is saying that when we have prayed in faith according to the will of God, Not only do we know that he has heard us, we know that he has answered in accordance with what we have requested. That word have there, that first have in that verse, it's it's, the verb is in the present tense. It means it's true and real right now. It means even though you might not see the answer to the prayer, the prayer has been answered. And this takes us back to why we need to have confidence that he has heard us. If I've prayed according to the will of God, then I know God has heard me and I'm gonna move forward in confidence of that fact, that truth. You may not see the answer immediately in front of you, but God has answered. And in his timing, you may see the answer to that prayer. It's the difference between, oh, well, maybe he didn't hear me. Maybe he's not listening to me. Maybe God doesn't answer prayer, which is what the devil speaks into our heads, right? It's a difference between that and nah. I have absolute confidence that he has answered that prayer. Why? Because I have confidently come before him and I've asked according to his will and therefore I have absolute confidence and I will move forward in that confidence even if I don't see the answer right in front of me right now. Many of us don't pray that way or we don't have the habit of praying that way maybe because we're timid, maybe we're afraid, maybe we're unsure, we're uncertain but God doesn't want us to be uncertain. Have you ever thanked God for an answer to prayer before you saw the answer? That's a good habit to start. God, I know I'm praying according to your will, I'm sure of that, so thank you for answering that prayer. This is what John is talking about here, and so twice in verse 15, you'll see he uses the word no. 
He says, if we know that he hears us, then we know that we have what we have asked of him. That word if there, it's that word that could be better rendered since, right? It's not that John is questioning whether or not God hears us. He's saying, since we know that he hears us, since we know that he hears us, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Since we know that he hears us, since we know that we've prayed according to his will, not on ourselves, not on our own will, but according to his will, then we can have confidence that he has heard us. And so in closing here, I just, you know, why aren't your prayers working? Why do I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling sometimes? Well, maybe it's because God's not your dad. Maybe you're not his kid yet. You can fix that today by putting your faith in Christ. You can fix that today by putting your faith in him, not your ceremony, not your religious activity, not your ritual, not your good intentions, not your intellectual understanding, but your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of your soul. And you do that simply by praying to God and confessing your faith in him, praying according to his will that you be saved and transformed and redeemed. Confess your faith in him, repent of your sin, accept his lordship over your life and you'll fix the him not being your dad part. Maybe it's because you're not asking according to his will. Lord, I need a Lamborghini. That might not be his will for you. It doesn't mean it would never be his will. God has no problem giving his kid a Lamborghini. But maybe that's not his will for you. Lord, I trust you. And here is my transportation need. And Lord, if it's your will for me to have this or that vehicle or take the bus, whatever it is, your will be done. That is a prayer that you can be sure God hears. Lord, help me to love people. Done. Lord, help me to forgive those who have wronged me. Done. Lord, help me to, to, to desire and discern what your will is for my life. I want to know it. I will obey it, uh, whatever it may be. And you start with his word and you learn it and you live it and you obey it and then, then you trust that his spirit will, will help you find the, the gaps in your understanding and you move forward in that prayer. God, I don't even know what to pray for or how to pray for it, but what I can say is, here's my request. Here's what I think, but nonetheless, not my will, your will be done. God hears that prayer. Maybe it's because you're living in rebellion or in sin, walking in disobedience or darkness. Right, Psalms chapter 66 verse 18 says, if I had been aware of malice in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If you're in sin and you're praying and you're like, it feels like God's not listening to me, it's not because he's mad at you. He's not giving you the cold shoulder, the silent treatment, that's not how God works. It's because your disobedience and your sin has rehung the veil. Has caused a separation between you and him, you need to repent of that sin. You need to repent of your disobedience. Maybe it's because according to 1 Peter 3, 7, right, you're a husband who's not honoring or loving your wife in a biblical way, which that's not God's will for your marriage. And so Peter said there that your prayers are then hindered. Maybe you need to repent of that. Maybe according to Matthew 5, 23 and 24, there's someone that, that you've hurt or offended greatly and you know it you know you've offended them, but you're trying to come to the altar of praise and say, God, here's my request of you. And he goes, uh-uh. Go deal with that first. Then come to the altar. Why? Because in John 15, 7, Jesus said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you will ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Our union with Christ, our connection to God through our salvation that is born of our faith in his son, our, our deep abiding fellowship with him, that's what that word remain means. It means that we can have absolute assurance that when we are walking in obedience, when we are walking close to him, when we are staying in his word, when we're staying in that place of, of honoring him in our lives, when we are sure that we are his kids. Why? Because we have a desire to want to obey him. And we come to him regularly in confession when we mess up. And we say, I want to stay in the light. And I want to love my brothers. And I believe that Jesus, you are who you say you are. And when we're in all of that, and we pray according to his will, 
God, what do you want for my life? God, I'm not gonna pray the things you've already (laughs) very clearly uh, spelled out for me. I'm gonna do those things. But God, the things that I'm unsure of, I, I, I need your direction. What is your will for my life? You can be assured, absolutely certain that he hears your prayers and that the answer to those prayers has already been dispatched. It is already there. It is already real. And so let's walk in confidence. Let's pray in confidence. Let's live in our confidence before him, our Father in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we trust you in all things. And we confess, Lord, our lack of faith. We confess, Lord, where our behavior maybe is demonstrated or at least communicated that we don't really trust you. And God, we ask that you would just forgive us of that and restore us to a place, Lord, of just knowing and believing and living in confidence that you are our Father, that you hear our prayers, and that you answer. Lord, we know it's prayers that are prayed according to your will that we can have this confidence in, Lord, and so help us to pray prayers that are according to your will, Lord. That doesn't mean we can't ask for things, God, but we need to be people who are willing to yield to your will no matter what it is. That instead of demanding our way, instead of demanding our will, instead of demanding that our kingdom come, we would truly be people in faith and confidence that would come before you, our Father, at all times, even in the times of our weakness, and present our needs to you, but always submit those needs to your will. And that we would follow the example of Jesus Christ. Always praying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. That, Lord, as we study your word, we would learn more of you and your character and your heart so that we would not have questions about your will in in many things, God, but in those places, Lord, where we're still unsure. We trust that your Holy Spirit who dwells within us will guide us. And so help us to be people, Lord, that as we come before you with our needs, Lord, we would truly always start with a desire, a real desire, to really know what it is you want. And then, Lord, to be diligent in discerning what it is you want. And then, Lord, at the end of the day, being people willing to do whatever it is you want. God, we know you hear prayers that are according to your will, and so help us to always pray that way, God. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's worship, guys.